All right, good evening, everyone. If you could return to your seat, we can mix and mingle a bit later. My name is Matt. I happen to be your guest speaker tonight, as Pastor Tim said. Um, I serve as the pastor at the Surrey campus, Every Nation Surrey, which is pretty sweet. And just to give a little update, uh, today we had our second soft launch service. We have one more, November 27th. We're still in the building. God is good. It's awesome. And then December 11th, we're at a Christmas party with everyone. So hopefully we'll all see you there. And then after the week of prayer and fasting in January, Lord willing, every week we will be at SFU Surrey. So God is good. We have our teams building. If you could continue to pray for us. It's been so cool. Um, I haven't seen any of you there, but that's not the cool part. But the cool part is... You're texting and saying, hey, I have a friend in Surrey. I have family in Surrey. You should reach out to them, or I'm sending them your way. And I just want to say I'm so glad that we get to be spiritual family together and do church together. And so thank you for all your support and help in that. If you have your Bibles, could you please turn to Daniel chapter 6? Excuse me, Daniel chapter 6. If you have a Bible app or a Bible, you can open up there. And while you're doing that, I want you to think, have you ever asked the question, if you see someone doing something, I usually have two questions, but it depends on what the person's doing. If it's something that I like or that I'm interested, I go, wow, how do you do that? But then if it's something that's like, I never want to do that, Uh, that looks like a waste of time or not my interest, I say, Why do you do that? And I wonder if sometimes when we see things going on, if that's sometimes our questions in life. Wow, how do you do that? Or why do you do that? And what I want to do tonight is look at those two questions as we continue our sermon series of turning points. And what we're doing is, just like uh, Leah did earlier, We're looking at Bible characters and looking at the challenge of not just living life, but living life on purpose, because there's a big difference between that, right? That you can survive life, or you can actually do something in life that has a purpose, that has value. And so we've been looking at that, and we've been looking at what choices did they make, and how did those choices change the trajectory of their life? How did it help them, hurt them, and that's what we want to look at. How did you do that, or why did you do that? And I think this is important because our decisions matter. They really do. And so Daniel chapter 6, as we just heard earlier, is probably one of the most familiar stories of Daniel's life. And what I wanted to do was just take a look at how did Daniel choose to live a life for God, but not be of the world? Okay, so that's our question tonight. How do you live in the world but not be of the world? Um, But before we get to Daniel chapter 6, let's look at how this whole story has started. So Daniel chapter 1, so go five chapters before, and it says this in verse 1, Daniel chapter 1. In the third reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. He took it, and the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia, and he put in the treasure house of his God. 
Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of the court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility, young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. Here's what's going on. Nebuchadnezzar carried off 10,000 people to Babylon. He took them away from their home, their culture, their God, all of these things, their faith. He took them away. He chose the best of the best. And Daniel, our main character tonight, along with his three friends, were part of those 10,000 exiles that were taken. Um, They were taken at their youth, and they were picked because of their statue, what they look like, their values, that kind of thing. They were picked for those things. Now, this may come as a shock. Like, how could this happen to God's people? Well, why would he allow such a thing? Where was God in this? How did this even happen? But as we see, um, a few decades earlier, the prophet Jeremiah wrote this. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. So before it happened, God said, this is what I need you to do when you're taken into exile. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens. Eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Don't decrease. Also, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. It's kind of a big request. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. So pray for the prosperity of the city that you're going into. And he says, you know, don't listen to anyone who says this is a bad plan, because it's not. Listen to me. This is a good plan. And, you know, sometimes we don't know God's timing. We don't know the fullness of it. But here he says, you're going to be there for 70 years. Be faithful for 70 years and watch what I do. And then he says this with a very famous verse that we're all probably familiar with. We've seen it on a coffee cup. We've seen it on a sweatshirt. We've seen it in our homes. Maybe it's our life verse, but it's Jeremiah 29, 11. After he asks for us, you know, these people who are exiles, taken from everything, to be in another culture, to serve that culture, he says, do this, for I know the plans I have for you declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. It doesn't seem like there's going to be a future in exile, but he says, trust me, I have a plan for you. And we see that through the book of Daniel, him and his friends rose quickly through the Babylonian system, and they served in courts of position and authority. And we see with Daniel and his friends that they had two options in Babylon. As they were living there as exiles, they had two options. And perhaps these are the same options that we have in the world that we live today, especially if you are a minority in a pagan society, if you have a faith that the world does not. You can reject the culture and create your own, or you can blend in and eventually compromise, be led by your own convictions. And this is true, isn't it, in life situations? There is always temptation to either tribalize or withdraw or to just blend in so you don't disrupt anything and you just accommodate. So the two choices that Daniel and his friends had, they could withdraw 
or they could compromise in this new society that they are in. And we see that both of these options, um, actually in scripture, they're defined as worldly decisions, not godly decisions. Because this goes against Jesus' teaching on the mount. He says, you are light and salt to the world. Don't hide a light under a bushel, so don't retreat. And as salt, don't lose its flavor. Like, you have a job to do. Don't become like the things that need salt. Be salt to the things that need salt. So as Christians who live in the world, how are we to not be of the world at the same time? I mean, how, how do you choose between these two ditches? Do we just say, ah, they'll never believe what I believe. So we retreat and we create our own little Christian societies, our own little religious holy huddles. Is that what we do? Or do we just kind of blend in to survive? Well, I think there's a third way. Actually, there has to be a third way. And this is what I think we find in the book of Daniel. And this is why it's important for us in 2022, as most of us belong to an ever-shrinking minority in a world that does not look for Jesus, we must reject the temptations of both isolation and compromise. Compromise. So what did we see Daniel do? Well, we find that Daniel and his friends, they said yes and no in the society that they were in. They faced up to life in a real way. They were called to action. They were called to be witnesses. They were to show love. They were prepared to serve Babylon. They were part of God's plan. They wanted prosperity to happen in Babylon. They wanted to build up its society. They didn't want to undermine it. Um, even they took on new names. And these names were based on Babylonian gods, on pagan gods. And not only were they just new names, those names showed that they were part of the system. They had an allegiance to the culture. Because here were their names. You had Daniel. His name was God is my judge. But it was changed to Belteshazzar. You had Hananiah, whose name was God has been gracious. His name is changed to Shadrach. You have Mishael. Name is who is like God. It's changed to Meshach. And Azariah, God is help. These are pretty good names if you're looking for names. But um, it's changed to Abednego. Now, some would think they sold out. They gave up hope. They took on names of the society. But I would argue that the book of Daniel shows us this just isn't the case. Because, in fact, there were times when they were willing to say no. They didn't always say no but they didn't always say yes either. We see in chapter one of Daniel, Daniel and uh, his friends, they said no when it came to eating of the king's meat. They would not compromise. And in fact, they were an example in the society. God blessed them and they looked better and fairer than anyone there. Chapter two, Daniel and his friends said yes to interpreting the king's dream. As they're um, separated from society, um, the king needs help, and Daniel says, I can help. It's going to be through God, but I can help, and he serves the king. And in chapter 3, um, Daniel's friends say no to bowing down to the king's golden image, and they're thrown into the fiery furnace, but they're saved by the angel of the Lord. Now in chapter 6, here's what's taken place. The Persians have taken over. So we see that Daniel went from being part of a royal family in Jerusalem to now serving a pagan king where he said yes and no and he was part of the society. And now the Persians have taken over and it brings us to chapter six. And here's what it says. 
It pleased Darius to appoint 120 satraps to rule throughout the kingdom with three administrators over them, one of whom was Daniel. The satraps were made accountable to them so that the king might not suffer loss. It's a pretty big position. The king would trust this position. So we have 120 provincial governors, the satraps, and you have three administrators over them, and then the king. Daniel is one of these three. He is second to the king. Verse three, now Daniel so distinguished himself among the administrators and the satraps by his exceptional qualities that the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. That's a pretty big promotion. That's pretty cool. That we see that Daniel is only answerable to the king. And this sounds a little bit familiar for all of us Sunday school kids, right? This is like Joseph. He was second to Pharaoh. God had a plan and it's coming to fruition. And we should not be surprised at this though, because as you read, you see that, uh, as you read the book of Daniel, you see that God is with them. He rose to this high position because God's plan is in effect. But not everybody is happy about this plan. Verse four, at this, the administrators and the satraps tried to find grounds for charges against Daniel in his conduct of government affairs but they were unable to do so. They could find no corruption in him because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. Finally, these men said, we will never find any basis for charges against this man, Daniel, unless it has something to do with the law of his God. So these administrators and satraps went as a group to the king and said, may King Darius live forever. The royal administrators, prefects, satraps, advisors, governors have all agreed, not all, Daniel didn't agree, but have all agreed that the king should issue an edict and enforce the decree that anyone who prays to any god or human being during the next 30 days except to you, your majesty, shall be thrown into the lion's den. Now, your majesty, issue this decree and put it in writing so that it cannot be altered in accordance with the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be repealed. So King Darius put the decree in writing. So based on this, Daniel's a pretty good guy, but apparently he has some enemies. And as I was preparing for this and reading, I'm like, well, time out. Daniel serves God, and I serve God. Daniel has enemies. Do I have enemies? I mean, I'm Matt Johnson. I'm, I'm pretty nice. No one's ever been mad at me, right, uh, today. And like, what? <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> but do I have enemies? And then it reminded me of reading through the Psalms. If you've ever read through the Psalms or prayed through the Psalms, it might come as a surprise to you how many times the word enemies appears I mean, th this is a book that we are talking in conversation to the God who started the conversation, yet second to God, who is what Psalms is about, we have the mention of enemies. Why are we, why were the psalmists always praying against their enemies or for help and salvation from their enemies? Um, and, and we found that God would deal with their enemies because sometimes they had some very harsh things to say about their enemies. But, but aren't we supposed to love our enemies? Like, what do you do? Well, in order to love your enemy, you need to know who your enemies are. 
And we find in scripture, there's an ongoing hatred towards God's people, those who follow Jesus. In our text today, these officials hate Daniel. Why do they hate him? One thing that we know about human hatred in scripture is that it's irrational. It usually does not make sense. I mean, there may be various reasons given, you know, jealousy, revenge, boredom. But in fact, if you, if you think it out, the starting point of human hatred towards people, it really doesn't make sense. If you've been on Netflix lately and you look at the top 10, it's like all murder shows. It's all documentaries on uh, serial killers. I'm like, Kat, why are you watching that? Like, we need to watch better stuff. I'm kidding. But, and I haven't seen it, but people have told me. Um, in these documentaries, um, <coughs> in these documentaries, they, like, they know that there's a reason, there's a motive, but then at the end, the reporters will say they gave no reason. It just happened. They did it. There was no real good explanation for what they did. And in scripture, you see this. Cain hates his brother Abel. Joseph's brothers, they hate him. Saul hated David. And we also see in scripture that human hatred is often deadly. Cain killed Abel. Joseph's brothers wanted him dead. Saul hunted down David. As 1 John says, anyone who hates his brother or sister is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life residing in him. We also see in scripture that human hatred, it's anti-God. When we speak of murder, we see that hatred leads to murder. And murder is ultimately an attempt to kill God. Because you can't kill God, but the next best thing you can do is kill something that's in the image of God. And human hatred is ultimately against God. In the crucifixion, we see all these elements come together of human hatred. It's irrational. Jesus was doing good. He healed them. Why did they want to kill him? Human hatred leads to death. The people and false teachers screamed for Jesus to be exchanged for a murderer so that they could, or a murderer to be exchanged for Jesus so that they could kill him. And human hatred is anti-God. It goes against his plan. And we see that hatred does not arise out of the goodness of God's creation, but that it has its origins in the intrusion of the satanic mind that wants to use its power to kill God and his people. Human hatred, by definition, is demonic, and it's absurd. And, it's, and instead of accepting God's light, human hatred remains in darkness. So there's no rational reason for these men to hate Daniel, but they do, and they want him dead. So I don't know about you, but if you heard that someone was coming out to kill you or that a law was made that you know is going to cost you your life, I don't know how you would feel, but how does Daniel feel? Verse 10, now when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened toward Jerusalem. Three times a day, he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to God, just as he had done before. Maybe not what I would do, but wow. He prayed towards Jerusalem. Like, why? Why did he go and pray in that direction? Is there a law for that? There's no law for that. But we're reminded in, uh, in 1 Kings where Solomon, he has his dedication for the temple, and he says this. 
in 1 Kings uh, chapter 8. When they sin against you, so he's talking about God. When they sin against you, for there is no one who does not sin, and you become angry with them and give them over to their enemies who take them captive to their own lands far away and near. And if they have a change of heart in the land where they are held captive and repent and plead with you in the land of their captors and say, we have sinned, we have done wrong, we have acted wickedly. And if they turn back to you with all their heart and soul in the land of their enemies who took them captive and pray to you toward the land you gave their ancestors, toward the city you have chosen and the temple I have built for your name, then from heaven, your dwelling place, hear their prayers and their plea, and uphold their cause. Now, later on in the book of Daniel, Daniel will be praying a prayer of repentance on behalf of his people, because 70 years is up, and the people have not kept God's plan. They haven't. They've kept Babylon's plan. They have not kept God uh, as priority and first. But right now, his, Daniel's prayer is not one of repentance like Solomon's, but it's a prayer of thanksgiving. So why face Jerusalem? The temple is gone. The city's been destroyed. But by facing Jerusalem, Daniel is acknowledging that God is still here. God is still the keeper of the promise and the plan that he gave Daniel. And he gives thanks. Now, by watching Daniel react, returning to his home to pray three times a day, no matter what, um, yeah, no matter what, it seems, you know, according to Daniel, it seems that uh, the life of faith is rooted not just in hard work or perseverance. The life of faith is actually rooted in thanksgiving. We also hear the Apostle Paul say this in Romans chapter 1, that people start to turn away from God when they stop giving thanks. As it says, for although they knew God, they no longer glorified him as such or gave thanks to him. Their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. So the decree is out on Daniel, and yet he continues to pray. It's his habit, and he continues to give thanks. Now, I don't know about you. I think I would like to pray like Daniel, but Jesus said we can pray in closets as well, right? Like He said that we can do this in private, no one has to see. So maybe I do that, but Daniel does it in the open. He hears the bad news. He knows death is coming for him, and he continues to thank God. Clearly, Daniel is not of that society, yet he doesn't blame or hide either. He engages with God in the open. So referencing the question we brought up at the beginning, how do you find this third option for having faith to live in the world while not being part of it? Because there's several options that we can do for living in the world, not being part of it. First, we could retreat. That's the first ditch, right? Like we could retreat and believe that Christ is against culture. So we just need to get away from culture because God is in opposition. It's separate from him. It's unimportant. It's irredeemable. It's under the judgment of God. So we, we can just go away and create our own little society, our own little thing. Uh, I remember one of my first jobs was working at a Christian bookstore. And the reason I worked there is because my mom forced me there. Uh, I was listening to secular music at the time. Might still do, but I was listening to music. And uh, my mom 
said, hey, you need to listen to Christian music. And I thought I had a good response. I'm like, mom, there's no such thing as Christian music. There's only Christian lyrics. She's like, that's garbage. Go get a job at a Christian bookstore. So I worked at this Christian bookstore, and it was so funny because people would come in, and I worked in the music section, and they were like, hey, uh, yeah, I, I like this band. Can you find a Christian band that sounds like them? And like, I had to find a Christian alternative for the thing they really liked, but I had to find a Christian one. Like, hey, do you have anything like Spice Girls? I don't know, Point of Grace, does that count? Or uh, like, we like ACDC, uh, ACDC talk. Like, I don't know what <laughs> to do, but like, is that, can I try that? We even had Christian Tic Tacs. They were called Testaments. Have you seen those? And I gave one to a friend one time at school, and he's like, is my mouth going to, like, catch on fire? Because I've never read the Bible. Like, just eat the mint, man. You're good. Um, But we can do that. We can run away. But Jesus said we are to be salt and light to the culture, not to be our own culture and keep the world separate. Because when we isolate from the world, we typically do it out of panic, don't we? And we can ultimately reject Christ's lordship over all the earth. He's in charge. He's the one that's given this plan. And when we create our own little cultures that protect our beliefs and standards, the world doesn't see that. What the world sees is communities of fear, judgment, and hate because we separate ourselves from them. And we fail, actually, to demonstrate and communicate love and truth to a watching world. And we saw that another option, that other ditch, is like, well, do you just join them? Do you just go in, say nothing, and just be part of the society? And we saw that Daniel served the culture he was in. However, he did not serve the God of culture. He served the God of Israel. And when we serve the God of culture, we can tend to think that nature is the problem, not culture. So what do we do? We accommodate culture, and we serve their causes. And this is good. This is noble. It helps us be more sensitive to the needs and injustices that are all around us. But I believe this approach, it's not of God because it doesn't support what the Bible teaches about our fallen condition. That we're we're not just in need of comforting and accepting. We actually all need to be redeemed back to God. We need brand new hearts. We need hearts to beat for what we were originally created for. Um, The Vancouver Film Festival was here a few weeks ago, and I went with a friend to watch a movie, and it was in a church, and it was pretty cool. Never watched a movie in a church, well, maybe some movies, but I've never watched like a big movie production. There was live music. It was super cool, super fun, Um, and there was a connection card in front of me, so I picked it up, and I read it, and it said, welcome to our church. We take the Bible very seriously, but not literally. I'm like, oh, you have my attention. And I'm like, okay, what do they mean by that literally? Like maybe it's, you know, six-day creation or what? Okay, maybe I could see. And then it said, um, you know, you're going to have problems in your life. So you need to find the right spirit to trust. And we believe that right spirit is you. I'm like, oh, you don't take it literally at all. Okay, this is good to know. And, you know, it's good. Um, I lost my part. There we go. Um, It's good that we want to help a hurting world, but the truth is there's only one thing, one person who can truly do that perfectly. And what we see with Daniel 
God is in control and he has a plan to renew all things. And he's thankful for that. Even though he's about to have his life taken from him, he is thankful that God is in the business of renewal, that God has a plan that's coming to fruition. So how do you do that? How do you find this third option? Like, how do you do that? Today, we have the example of Daniel's faithfulness to God in Babylon. And several have tried to break down this faithfulness and just use it as, you know, here's step one, here's step two. I remember years ago, there was something called the Daniel diet, where you just drink water and eat vegetables and pray. Yeah, I think you'll lose weight if that's all you'll do. But they made a whole step, like this is what faithfulness looks like in dieting. So try Daniel's way. And then there was also this conference I went to. It was a youth conference. It was called Dare to Be a Daniel. And so I took one of my youth with me, and it was pretty cool. A pretty weird title, but like, yeah, Dare to Be a Daniel. And so we go to this, and the speaker started off and said, name one other Christian hero in the Bible who was better than Daniel. Just name one. And the student who was sitting next to me goes, Jesus. I'm like, I think that was rhetorical, but yeah, you're right. You're right. And so this is good. I'm so thankful for Daniel's example. But we are not to follow and practice Daniel's faithfulness perfectly. But instead, we are to have the faithfulness um, to the perfect one that Daniel followed. Because we don't have a Daniel if we don't have God. That's the truth. We don't have Daniel if we don't have God. That's what made Daniel, Daniel. So what did he do? Verse 18. Then the king returned to his palace. Oh, excuse me, sorry. Before we get there, so Daniel's enemies, they're trying to kill him. And the king regrets his decision because he cares about Daniel. And so, verse 18. Then the king returned to his palace and spent the night without eating and without any entertainment being brought to him. And he could not sleep. And at the first light of dawn, the king got up and hurried to the lion's den. When he came near the den, he called to Daniel in anguished voice, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God whom you serve continually been able to rescue you from the lions? Daniel answered, may the king live forever. My God sent his angel and he shut the mouths of the lions. They have not hurt me because I was found innocent in his sight nor have I ever done any wrong before you, your majesty. I love that. I was innocent before God because I live for God, but I've never done anything wrong to you. I serve you. The king was overjoyed and gave orders to lift Daniel out of the den. And when Daniel was lifted from the den, no wound was found on him because he had trusted in his God. Verse 25, then King Darius wrote to all the nations and peoples of every language in all the earth, Pretty impressive reach. May you prosper greatly. I issue a decree that in every part of my kingdom, people must fear and reverence the God of Daniel. And I wonder if they're like, who's who's Daniel? (laughs) Like, who, who is this guy? But here's what he says about Daniel's God. For he is the living God and he endures forever. His kingdom will not be destroyed. His dominion will never end. He rescues and he saves. He performs signs and wonders in the heavens and on the earth. He rescued Daniel from the power of the lions. I saw this. So Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus, the Persian. So what does this look like for us? I mean, is this at all relatable? 
maybe this is our struggle today. I want to live for God, but I'm living in this world. Like, how do I do that? Maybe we've already separated, and we see that not a whole lot is happening for God. Maybe we've already compromised, and we trust another source other than God. What do we do? Uh, Ken Myers, the host of Mars Hill Audio Journal, uh, no association with the church Mars Hill, he suggests that followers of Jesus need to develop a theology of practically being in the world, but not of it. And he calls this the theology of the exile. And he illustrates it by giving three biblical cities as example of where we could, of where we could be living and how to live in those places. And here's the three cities he uses. He uses Jerusalem, Samaria, and Babylon. And here's how he describes them. Jerusalem is where God's word is honored. And though not everyone living there is a believer, the culture is ultimately rooted in the reality of God and truth of his law. I want to live there. That sounds pretty good. And then he says, then there's Samaria, which is different from Jerusalem, but it's not that far away either, as it's populated by people who have, over the years, they were God's people, but they married unbelievers. Their commitment to God and his word has been compromised. And actually, during this time, the prophets called Samaria a center of idolatry. This is where Ahab and Jezebel encouraged the worship of Baal. They chose wickedness. They chose the people, forced the people to choose wickedness. But the idolatry eventually ended. But the Samaritans, they went back to worshiping, but they don't worship back in the temple. They worship at Mount Gerizim. And rather than accepting the entire Old Testament, they only accept the first five books. Um, and it's good. They still have worship. They still have beliefs, but it doesn't really do anything. And then Mr. Meyer says, think of Babylon. Think of Babylon, which is very far from both Jerusalem and Samaria. The literature and culture is what one would expect when belief in many gods rise to a worldview in which sorcery, charms, magic, astrology are essential parts of life. Now, God's word and law, if acknowledged at all, are simply seen as one option among many as the other gods are working somehow. Everyone seems to be doing okay. But here, the people of God in Babylon, they're a small minority, living among people who do not share their deepest convictions in a society where a variety of beliefs and values compete for acceptance. Now, when you think of those, where do you live? Which one do you fall in? I want to live in Jerusalem, but that's not my reality, the world I live in. And Samaria, that, that's kind of foreign to me. I, I, I don't know if I fully have seen that. But when I hear Babylon, that sounds exactly where I live. How do you serve God? How do you live for God in Babylon? How do you serve him? We must remember, this is, we're serving the God who doesn't forget, the God who has good plans for us wherever we are. And this is actually good news because God is in the business of renewal. Even if we're living in a Babylon, God is in the business of renewal because creation, creativity, and human culture, these are all good gifts from God. But sadly, because of the fall, they're distorted because they are not as God intended. But God wasn't finished. 
Christ died to redeem all of creation. And his lordship means that all of life and reality is to be brought under his kingship and into conformity with his law and word. All life is now permeated with and conformed to the good news of Jesus Christ. Christ's redeeming culture holds a light to our sin and our needs for the cross. And it honors Christ as king across all of life, culture, and reality. But it gets messy, doesn't it? It gets really messy. The patience and the intent that it takes to renew something, that seems too much. That seems way too much. Like Daniel, I mean, this is why a Christian mind needs to be developed within the context of community. We need to be around others that are thinking of God as well, God's covenant people. Because without it, discernment will not mature and we'll just blend in. And when culture seems to go from bad to worse, it gets discouraging. Discouragement sets in and our hope will languish and we'll just run away. So you may not agree with me that we're living in Babylon, but I think we are. (laughs) So what do you do then when Babylon keeps making Babylonian films and you get upset because they're not making enough Jerusalem films? What do you do? What happens when Babylonians keep giving me Babylonian answers to my questions and I have to be patient and refrain giving answers to questions they haven't even asked yet, questions they can't receive or appreciate yet? Why, when I'm speaking to a Babylonian, someone who doesn't worship the same God I do, why do I get reactionary to their ways, to the way they talk, and I build up walls? Instead, my concern should be with how do I get into their lives? How do I love them like Christ has loved me? Like Christ has shared his life with me, how do I share my life with Christ with them? Living as an exile in Babylon takes perseverance to love sinners whose sin we may find offensive, but the only reason we find it offensive is because we forget how offensive our own sin is. Yet God loved us still. I can invite the worship team up. We'll conclude here. But this past summer, (coughs) um, my wife and I, we do a lot of camp ministry for the past, I don't know, 15 years. And we went to a camp, and it was Penny's, our oldest daughter. She was 10 at the time. It was her very first time to be a camper. Pretty exciting. She was excited. Um, And... On about the third day, she came up to us and she was looking a little concerned, looking a little down. We're like, Penny, is everything okay? She says, well, something happened last night. Yes, you know, like what happened? She says, well, there's this girl in our cabin and, and she invited me to be part of a secret society. Like, oh, okay, well, what's the secret society about? Well, they want me to question my gender and they want me to, you know, question my sexuality and all this stuff. And, and like Kat and I are like kind of freaking out, you know, we're like, oh my goodness, this is why we sent you to a Christian camp. Why is this happening? You know, like, ah, you know, but before we freak out, before we just lay out on her, we go, so Penny, what, what'd you do? She goes, what? I just asked her, why does it have to be a secret? It's a pretty good question. What'd she say? She goes, 
Well, she said, maybe not everyone would understand. And so Penny says, oh, well, when I don't understand things, I go to Jesus. Can I invite him into our society? Like, Penny, I don't even do that. <laughs> like, how did, how did you just do that? And it was just incredible to see her faith that that the opposition, the secretness, or the secrecy, that didn't scare her because she knew God was with her. And at the end of that week, the leader of the secret society gave her life to Jesus, and they called it a Jesus society. <laughs> like, how cool is that? It's pretty cool. And, I mean, it's amazing. And who knows what happens again? It, it, that situation may happen again. Who knows what happens? Who knows what will happen? I mean, we're not going back to that camp again, but who? No, I'm just kidding. But, like, how does that happen? And I think if we are living in exile, we must remember that we are not here by chance. God has called us to serve him where we are, in this place and not in another, to serve the people that are around us. In the same way, Jewish exiles were convinced that it was God's hand that took them to Babylon. So we have been called to be faithful in this fallen world. So if you could just bow your heads with me and just think for a second as your eyes are closed, as you hear those three cities, I, I can imagine myself living in a Jerusalem. In fact, that's what I'm trying to create. Ba or Samaria, maybe. But Babylon, man, that's too tricky. That's a bit messy. I don't know if I can do that right. Yet wherever God's people are, that's where God is. God's there. And I hope this is good news for us as we try to live for God in this world that we are in right now. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you. God, we are so thankful that you have not left us in this world to figure it out on our own, but you have given us plans. You have given us um, a way out. You have redeemed culture. You have opened up our eyes, not just reminded us, but you have opened our eyes and changed our hearts to see the beauty of who you are and your plans for us. So God, I pray that you would be with us as we continue to live for you and for others each day. In Jesus' name, amen.